I promise I didn't ask my wife to say nice things about me. Uh, she did that on her own, but I liked it. So thank you. Uh, sincerely, uh, the partnerships in the network, as well as just uh, my wonderful, loving wife, enables me to be able to do what I do and serve. And so, man, it just got, it gets so sappy. Like, you can't do that to me. Um, one true story, true story. The first time my wife ever saw me, I don't, I don't remember it because she's the one that saw me. I didn't see her, but I was 13 years old and I was playing drums in a church service. So uh, here we are more than that old. So anyways, I'm sorry. Okay, I got to get back on track. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, welcome. Glad to have you. And what we're doing is we're going through a series of teachings called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, My card's fully on the table. As a Bible teacher, my goal is to convince you each and every single Sunday that you can know and read and learn the Word of God for yourself. That I am at my best as a preacher when I'm making you less dependent upon me and more directly dependent upon the Word of God by the power of the Spirit of God. And so doing a series like Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a problem sometimes where Christians stick to just the New Testament. And as wonderful as the New Testament is, the New Testament is the explanation of everything that came before. The Old Testament is literally two-thirds of your Bible. And without that, we don't get to see the wondrous work of God throughout redemptive history, throughout the storyline of the people of Israel working throughout the world to bring his son Jesus to come to live, die, rise again for our salvation. And so I'm always trying to convince you, you can read the Bible. You should read the Bible. You can understand the Bible. And I hope that you'll follow me there today as we look at the Old Testament prophets perhaps one of the most neglected sections of Scripture. The prophets. Yeah, you, you might neglect Leviticus too, but I don't, I don't know. The prophets, Leviticus, it's kind of a, a tie at times from my vantage point as a pastor, which one is getting read less. And I think, if I had to guess, this is just a guess, I think more people read Leviticus because they get to it in their Bible reading plans in March And then they at least read a little bit of Leviticus and then you just straight up skip all the Malachi's and Zechariah's and just go right to Colossians. Like, that's too hard. Let's just read some some Ephesians here and feel good. So either way, let's knock that off and let's uh, dive in to the prophets. I'm gonna do a scripture reading for us here today. I'm gonna read from Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. I'll read this, I'll pray, and then we'll spend some time discussing the Old Testament prophets. Now, that same day, Two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. So then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here these days? What things? He asked them. (laughs) And so they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him, but we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's been the third day since all these things happened. 
Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was still alive. Well, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they, they didn't see him. He said to them, How foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you move close to us right now? That beginning with Moses and all the prophets, we might see you. And Lord, let it not just be some sort of a head knowledge or a cerebral information, but God, would you even right now help us to experience your closeness. Calm our restless hearts. Help us to lower our guards and our defenses. Spirit of the living God, would you move in this place? Guard my lips, guard my words. Let me only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And may all of us come away with a deeper devotion to our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I am a fair-weather basketball fan. I only pay attention to basketball when my team is good, which is about once a decade. And they're really good right now, so I'm paying real close attention. So close of attention that even the other day I was watching a basketball game of two teams that weren't my team. This is how, Myung, you've messed me up. Thank you. Uh, I'm watching the game, and, and one of the players did the thing of shame that no basketball player ever wants to do on national TV, airball. You missed the rim. And I'm sitting there looking, I'm like, how many millions of dollars are you getting paid? And you just completely straight up missed the rim. And I did the thing. I had that automatic reaction, automatic reaction. I jumped up out of my chair. I was watching the game, and I did the thing. You guys know the thing when somebody shoots an air ball? Air ball. Like, it just, and I'm by myself in my TV room, like an idiot. And it, that moment, though, it triggered something in me that I'd forgotten about. So I went to school for music, and when I was in music school, I think it was the choir teacher talked to us about the way that she, she a study that she had read back in the 90s about air balls and how Whenever an air ball happens, there is some sort of a collective consciousness that takes over the whole crowd, and they all, in unison, chant together two notes. Does anyone want to venture a guess at what those two notes are? It's an F and a D. I'd actually go play it on the piano, but I'm afraid I might have just sung the wrong notes right now, so I won't do it. But it's, it's like this remarkable thing. This, this scholar at a university went and did like a, an actual full peer-approved study about the way that people will all, in time, without prompting, with no choir director, sing an F and a D at a basketball game when someone shoots an air ball. Here's, here's the article. Uh, I went and found it. Apparently, I have that in my archives because that's the kind of nerd that I am. It says, as any director of a church choir or secular chorus knows, getting a mere 20 or 30 trained singers to sing or chant together and in tune is not always easy. Am I right, Stephanie? It's like, like, this is not easy to do. Yet, without direction, instruction, a conductor, or a pitch pipe, thousands of strangers massed in indoor stadiums and arenas are able, if stimulated by an air ball, to chant 
airball in total and rhythmic unison. Now, that leads me to worship God because we are fearfully and wonderfully made, are we not? It is an incredible thing to think that human beings, I mean, something as silly as a basketball game. I mean, I'm a, I'm a sports fan. I get it. It's dumb. It's a stupid thing. Uh, somebody's shooting a ball, and we all start chanting together. But when you stop and think about the way that we're made, the way that we're wired together as human beings, we are made for togetherness, are we not? Created in the image and likeness of God, one God, three persons, Trinitarian, in relationship. And, and that relationship and the, the way that we're built for relationship and togetherness, it just continues to blow my mind. You've probably heard me talk about, you know, I watched a documentary a couple of years ago about mirror neurons, about how when, when, when you smile, even if I'm not smiling, the smile part of my brain lights up. Uh, asterisk, when in person, it doesn't work on Zoom. I've tried it. Uh, like we're just incredibly wired for togetherness. And you think about the way that God made us for this togetherness. It's such a powerful force. It's such a good thing, the ability to band together, to solve problems, to protect one another, to, to have each other's back. But how many of you know that that togetherness force can also take a wrong turn? Can be used for evil, a mob, a riot. It can be used for, for groupthink. That togetherness force, I mean, you know, the extreme example would be something like Nazi Germany where we sit back and we look at history. Like, how can everyone be so blind to the racism and the fear-mongering and the war-mongering taking place? It's that togetherness force used for wrong. I mean, maybe it's silly, but the the children's story, the, the fable of the emperor's new clothes. You guys know the story of the emperor's new clothes? It's a classic historic example of even in, in an age before ours where it's, you know, the emperor gets duped by a couple of scam artists. They make him clothes, they, or so he thinks, and he's wearing nothing. They didn't make him any clothes. They said, it's such light silk, you won't even feel like you have anything on. And he's parading around like an idiot, naked, and everyone else is afraid, and the, the, the togetherness force kind of kicks in, and he goes, oh, looking good, emperor, until one brave little kid stands up and goes, I, I'm sorry, I think I'm missing something. Is he not completely naked? It's the 2021 version for the, for the youths. Earlier this year, I was introduced to the work of a man named Edwin Friedman. And Friedman was, uh, before he died, he died in the 1990s. He was a rabbi, not a, not a messianic rabbi, he was a Jewish rabbi, but he was also a family therapist. And he did a lot of therapy and work with families, uh, family units, relational units. And he began to notice certain patterns about this togetherness force versus individuality. Now, there's these kind of two forces at work. There's a, there's a desire to be the we, but then how many of you know there's also the desire to be me? And both are good. Both have their place. But in his study and in his research, which he's published extensively on, he noticed a few trends. He says, one, one thing he noticed is that when there's an anxiety, when there's stress, when there's hardship, the togetherness force really wins. Togetherness takes over. You could think of it kind of like even in nature where, you know, the, the herd of bison circle together when there's danger or threat. We, we human beings do that. The second thing he noticed is that's a real problem because the more that anxious and stressed people herd together, it just creates more anxiety. It creates more stress, creates more anxiety, and creates more togetherness. It's like a, it's like a, a feedback loop. But the third thing that he noticed is when that feedback loop is locked in, mature individuality actually becomes demonized. 
someone will be called a name or will be threatened or will be even at times harmed for being like the little boy in the emperor's clothes who calls out and says, hey, I think I'm seeing something. Now, all of that, I want you to hold that all in the back of your mind as we explore this idea of the biblical prophets, women and men who had to stand up against societies, rulers, entire groups of people who were all going in one direction and a biblical prophet has to raise her hand and say, excuse me, hold that in the back of your mind. Now, prophets. Uh, prophets, you, you can find prophets all throughout the whole Bible. All throughout the whole Bible. Uh, the first person who's referred to as a prophet is Abraham. Then you get Moses. His sister Miriam is referred to as a prophetess. And Aaron, the brother of Moses. All the way, literally, through the, the book of Revelation. There are prophets all over the place. For today, I am wanting to really hone in and focus in on the specific group known as the prophets. And this is a group of, of uh, particularly men that, that we have the collection of their writings, the major prophets— excuse me, Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, and then you have the minor prophets. You get into you know, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all of those guys, Jonah, the minor prophets, that really uh, did their work and their ministry in the period of the monarchy. So there's judges, but then there's like the monarchy when David became king through and then after the return from exile. And when I'm speaking about prophets, I'm, I'm encouraging you to think more preacher and less fortune teller. In our cultural imagination, when we hear the word prophet, we often think of, you know, things that you see in the movies, oh, the prophecy was foretold, you know, whether it's, you know, Lord of the Rings type of things, or the, was it the Lego Batman movie, or the prophecy, you know, like just, you know, those kinds of things are in our cultural imagination, and while yes, most certainly, the, the, the Hebrew prophets, there is an aspect of future orientation, and there are times very clearly where God speaks through them about things that are to come. That's a, that's a minor note. The major theme is proclamation and preaching and leading the people to worship the one true God. So let me, let me talk about this particular group of prophets. I want to talk about their identity. I want to talk about their focus and their temperament. So let's start with their identity. The identity of this group of prophets is a diverse minority. Starting with the word diverse, both women and men were used by God in the role of prophet. Uh, there's a, in the New Testament, I know we're not doing the New Testament today, but there is a guy named Philip and said he had five daughters and they all prophesied. So he's like, I got four daughters. He's five. He's really, I mean, come on. In the Old Testament, in the period of the kings, there's a woman named Huldah who was used by God, the, the King Josiah, the young King Josiah, they'd uncovered the, the book of God's law, the, the Torah, and realized they had been ignoring it for generations. And Huldah, the prophetess, comes along and she teaches Josiah the word of God so that he can then go lead the people in obedience to God. There's diversity of, of notoriety. Someone like Jeremiah actually led a school of prophets. He was well-known. He spoke before kings. Uh, a prophet like, you know, uh, you know, Nahum. Like, Nahum. I mean, it's even in the name. Who's going to pay attention to a guy named Nahum, right? There was social diversity. You have Ezekiel, who's a member of the priestly class, a little more upper crust. You have someone like Elisha, who when we meet Elisha, he's plowing a field. He's working with his hands. 
There's historical diversity over many generations. There's, there's even stylistic diversity. The different prophets, maybe, maybe it's hard for us to see it in the English as clearly as you could if you knew the original Hebrew, but, but we know there's stylistic diversity. How many of you are familiar with the prophet Jeremiah? Does anyone know what Jeremiah the prophet's nickname is? Anybody? Weeping the weeping prophet. Thank you, Jeremiah. I'll give you some Halloween candy afterwards. I'm trying to get rid of it. The weeping prophet. I mean, talk about like, like he was emo before there was a hot topic, right? He was just mascara, guy liner everywhere, right? The prophet Joel, however, by contrast, Joel has a nickname. It's probably not as well known. Does anyone know the nickname of the prophet Joel? Jeremiah, follow up? Daily Double? No? All right. Joel is known as... I just got it. Your name is Jeremiah and the weeping prophet. I just put two and two together. I was already, I was, I was on my next point. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Man, do you need a hug? Are you going to cry? <laughs> okay, sorry. Joel, if your name's here and your name's Joel, I'm, he was the prophet of doom. He was known for, like, if you read the book of Joel, it's like all these, like, scorpions the size of horses and locusts and they're rampaging. It's like a Halloween movie. So you have, you know, you've got, like, dashboard confessional and like megadeth, right? And like everything in between. There's stylistic minority. I'll take that analogy out uh, next time I preach this sermon. There's even diversity of giftings. This was something I, I, I spent a little bit of time pondering this week. I wanted more time to think about it, but think about prophets like Elijah and Elisha who were used by God to, to like perform miraculous deeds, you know, the, the, the floating head of the axe or the, the widow's uh, child coming back to life or the jar of oil that didn't run out, these miraculous things. But when you read other, other um, books of prophecy, they're really, you know, the, the miracle, some just didn't operate in that gifting. It was just different. They were more of teachers or preachers. But here's the, the minority part. There's a lot of diversity, but the minority part is really interesting. You have to remember that they were often speaking in a cultural context that was hostile to their message. I tried to find the article. A few months ago, somebody shared on social media, I follow a, I follow a couple different like, biblical scholars, and someone posted this article. It was from a, a, a mainstream news source, and the article was basically like, new archaeology shows that people in ancient Israel worshipped other gods, and we're excavating these sites, and there's, the, you know, it was like, Israel may not have been as monotheistic as you thought. And I'm sitting there, I'm reading this, like the gasping, breathless, I'm like, like, have you read the Bible? Like, it is kind of everywhere that people would encounter times of whether it was either prosperity or stress, and they would, they would allow their hearts to go to worship of other gods. They would, they would worship the Baals. They would bow down before the Ashtoreths. They would sacrifice their children to Molech. And it was widespread. How many of you have read through the books of like Kings or Samuel, Kings and Chronicles? Anyone read those? I hope you did. I preached on it last week. Come on, let's go. How, how many of the, the kings were good versus how many of the kings were bad? How often was, was the time, you know, oh, the people are just really following the one true God versus how many times were they pursuing evil? It's, it's majority of the time what we read about is everybody worshiping all the different gods and the prophets being the lone voice. I mean, you can read Elijah. He's like, I'm the only one that's left. Turns out he was being a little bit dramatic too, but 
the very, very small minority of what we have, the prophetic books, are from a minority viewpoint. And sometimes it's hard for us to grasp because in our cultural history, what we have inherited as Americans is Christianity has enjoyed a certain place of prominence and, and, and even, I could say, popularity in our culture. And as our culture has made shifts towards secularization and um, you know, other religions have grown and expanded, there are times now where we as Christians can feel just a small little fraction of what these prophets would have felt. And it's different. It's not a one-to-one uh, parallel because this is Israel, which is a, the, the nation made of the family of God, and we are you know, strangers and exiles, but, but we can feel that little bit here every once in a while. The focus of the prophets is worship and justice. You know, you can read through the prophets, and there's a lot of different things that they focus on, but really it boils down to these two. Worship the one true God and practice justice in the public. For example, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 44, is a, is a brilliant, brilliant passage of prophetic sarcasm where the prophet Isaiah says, oh, you grow a tree, you, you cut it down, you, you chop it into firewood, you make a fire, you cook some delicious food, and then when you're done cooking your delicious food, in verse uh, 17, says, well, then he just makes a god or an idol with the rest of it, and he bows down to it and worships it, prays to it, save me, for you are my God. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their minds so they cannot understand. No one comes to his senses. No one has the perception or insight. The prophets of old wanted the people of Israel to worship the one true God. Don't let your heart pursue idols. Don't run after false gods. Is that still the same for us? Worship the one true God. Don't let our hearts run after false things that don't truly satisfy. When you read the prophets, though, you will also notice there is an inseparable link between worship or maybe righteousness, faithfulness to God, and justice. Just a few chapters later, the same prophet, Isaiah chapter 59, he has this big long section about how your sins have separated you from God and you've practiced unrighteousness. And then in verse 9, the prophet Isaiah speaks. He says, therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We hope for light, but there is darkness. We hope for brightness, but we live in the night. Down in verse 14, it says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off. Again, right there, both together, justice and righteousness. For truth has stumbled in the public square and honesty cannot enter. Truth is missing and whoever turns from evil is plundered. The Lord saw that there was no justice. And how does God feel about that? He says he's offended. Um... So, love and worship God. Care for your fellow man with justice. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does it sound like Jesus' teaching to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus, this isn't some brand new thing that Jesus just came up with on the spot. It's because Jesus is speaking the very message of the prophets. Let me just pause for a quick moment and make a little point of application. One of the things that is 
um, troublesome to me because I believe it breaks the heart of God is the way that we have fractured the idea of righteous godly living and public justice. As though righteous godly living, I mean, if, if, if someone in, in your life calls you to say, hey, you need to repent of this sin and you need to, you know, stop doing this thing or you need to follow God with more honesty, we say, oh, you're just being a legalist. Or for others, they're really concerned about you know, justice in our society and ways that our society is not treating people with dignity and the image and likeness of God. Oh, you're just a social justice warrior, friends. Those two things, righteous living and public justice, are not enemies. They are friends. They are inseparable. Read the prophets. Read your Bible. We can have conversations and discussions all day long about what's the best way to to enact those things and to live those things out. But at the very core, we are people of both worship and justice. Can I get an amen from anybody? I know it's when I start talking about these things, it gets real quiet in the room. So I'm out on thin ice and I would like you to join me, okay? (laughs) Third point about the prophets. Their temperament is both sober but also hopeful. Again, you read through the prophets, you don't get very far before you might start feeling a little bit exhausted. Like, read the book of Lamentations, for crying out loud. Do you know why it's called Lamentations? Because it's real sad. Or read, uh, read Hosea, right? God tells the prophet Hosea, hey, go marry a super unfaithful wife. And then you're going to feel like you got your guts and your heart ripped out. And then I'm going to spend the rest of the book of Hosea telling you about how that's how I feel when you worship other gods. Sobering. Weighty. Not pleasant to hear at times. One of my absolute favorite stories in the Old Testament uh, about prophets comes from 1 Kings 22. And King Ahab in the north and King Jehoshaphat in the south are conspiring together to go to war against the nation of Aram. And, and they get together and they say, oh, we should seek the Lord, make sure we're going to have success. And it says they have 400 prophets, 400 prophets. And all 400 of the prophets come forward and say, yep, go for it, kings. You're going to be successful. And, and Jehoshaphat kind of has like a little thing in the back of his mind. He goes, man, that just, it's a little too, I don't know. Is there someone else we should ask? And Ahab goes, yeah, there is this other guy. His name is Micaiah. I really hate him because he never says anything good about me. And Jehoshaphat goes, well, maybe we should at least ask him. Go read it. It's actually riotously funny. They go and they send a messenger and the messenger shows up to Micaiah and he's like, hey, Micaiah, the two kings want your perspective on if they should go to war or not. And uh, just so you know, all 400 of the other prophets have already given the thumbs up. So fall in line, buddy. And Micaiah goes, well, I'm going to only say what the Lord tells me to say. So he goes, and they stand before the kings, and they go, well, should we go to war? And like the way it reads, it's just, it's funny. He goes, yes, you should go to war. And Ahab goes, if I find out you're lying to me, I'm going to absolutely destroy you. And he goes, you're right. You're all going to die and just have your butts handed to you. Like, you know, go have fun. He's like, see, I told you, lock him up. That's more of the prophet role. That's more of the prophet role standing there and saying, I have to say what God says, and you might not like it. There's a sobriety, there's an intensity even at times to it. And yet, at the same time, some of the most tender, beautiful, heart-stirring messages of hope are found in the 
prophets, are they not? Isaiah says, a child is going to be born. He'll be the king. Jeremiah says, God's going to look on your hard hearts of stone and he's going to totally replace it with a new heart of flesh. Ezekiel comes, or sorry, Ezekiel said that and Jeremiah comes along and says, yeah, God's going to make a new covenant, a brand new covenant that's not even like the ones before. You can't even break this new covenant. And Daniel says, I see a picture at the end of days where everyone who is lying in the dust of the earth will be raised and those who have trusted in God will live everlasting lives. And Isaiah says, I have a picture of someday the Lord God is going to make all things new and the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb and there will be no hunger or tears or crying or war anymore for all things will be made new. In the midst of the message of repent is the beautiful offer of hope. So, how did the prophets do? Did they succeed? Short answer is, not really. A couple of scholars, Samuel Schultz and Gary Smith, say it well. Say, Though these messages, through these messages, the prophets hoped to persuade the people of Israel and Judah to turn from their selfish ways and dedicate their lives to God's service. And yeah, although the pagan people in Nineveh responded to Jonah's message, and yeah, the post-exilic community responded to the challenge from Haggai and Zechariah to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, listen to this, most prophets never record any kind of positive response. So the next time your Bible reading plan has you going through Ezekiel or you know, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, remember that these were people who spoke and, and they were faithful to God and they just by and large, did not see the results that maybe they were hoping for. But, remember that that's not the end of the story of the prophets. Because God, through Moses, promised that one day an ultimate prophet would arise. And that he would speak directly from God. And the prophets spoke about this one who was to come. And friends, we read about him in the pages of the New Testament. His name is Jesus. In our passage, in our scripture reading from Luke chapter 24, you might have been familiar, we, we, we quote it fairly often, the, the portion where it says that Jesus opened the disciples' eyes to read in all of the law and, and the prophets to see Jesus. But the part that jumped out to me was actually all the way back in verse 19 when they're walking, these two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and they said to Jesus, well, you know, it's, it's all this hubbub about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, Jesus was a prophet who was powerful in both action and speech before God and all of the people. And, and then our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be put to death. We had hoped, we had hoped that he was going to be the one, the ultimate prophet who would redeem Israel. Friends, think about this. Think about how Jesus embodies everything that I just said and more about the ministry of the prophets. Think about the diversity of Jesus' ministry of both men and women sitting and receiving his teaching and being sent out as messengers and witnesses. Think about Jesus doing miracles, but also washing feet. 
Think about Jesus standing before kings and rulers and, and important council members and think about how he was from Nazareth of Galilee in a small town and unimportant in and of himself. Think about Jesus being bold and proclaiming and preaching and even doing acts of, of turning over the tables and the, the kind of theater that like prophets like Jeremiah would be known for. And then also think of Jesus, the, the wise sage, sitting on a hill saying, consider the flowers of the field. Everything about the preaching and teaching and miraculous ministry of Jesus, of, of the prophets, it all is summed up in the person and the work of Jesus. And he was in the minority, was he not? As the various together groups, the, the, the forces of togetherness came and opposed him, Jesus knew who he was and what he was sent to do. So when his family shows up and said, you've lost your mind, you're embarrassing the family, Jesus says, I know who my father truly is. And when the religious leaders and the, the, the power brokers of the day in the Sanhedrin came to him and said, you're a, you're a heretic and you're speaking things that are not true about God, Jesus says, I and the father are one. I know who I am. And when the political leaders of the day came and said, you are a dissident, you are a political insurgent, and we're going to put you to death for stirring up the people. Jesus hung on a cross between two thieves with a sign above his head that said, the king of the Jews. And he was crucified to embody the message of death that the prophets said would happen for people who were not faithful. Jesus himself even says this in Matthew chapter 23. Before he goes to the cross, he's looking out over the city. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who kills the prophets. The city who stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, and he quotes from the prophets, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' message is sober. The people are sinful. The people don't want to hear the news of God. The people don't want to bow their knee to the one true God. And yet the message is also still hopeful. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And despite your resistance and your hard-heartedness, I'm going to gather you together. Oh man, this is the message of the gospel, friends. That Jesus came proclaiming repentance for not worshiping God and for treating others in a way that we ought not to treat them. And yet, Every single moment of hope that the prophets foretold, the, the, the resurrection from the dead that they pointed to, the, the new heart, the new heavens and the new earth, it all comes true in Jesus because friends, are you with me? He's not dead. On the third day, he rose showing that the offer of forgiveness and redemption was for anyone who would hear his message and respond to his call. This is the good news of the gospel we don't serve a dead prophet. We don't read the writings of a dead prophet and a dead religious leader. We worship and serve a resurrected and reigning Savior forever. And so, as we put our faith in him, we're called to follow him. We're called to be like him. We are called to embody his prophetic ministry. Let me, let me just say it really bluntly. You are called to be prophets. Prophets. 
in the, in, the, in the way that Jesus was, as united with him by faith. If you have put your faith in Jesus, there's an element of living prophetically that we must do. And so I want to share a few things. But I just want to say this. This, this is really important. In our day and in our culture, there are several different counterfeits for living prophetically. There is a, there's a type of counterfeit prophetic which is so overly focused on the predictive that it misses out on the proclamation side of things. Now, I believe that God may speak a word to someone. I actually had uh, someone recently share a testimony with me of a, of a very powerful like, word of knowledge that God spoke to him. We believe in that. We believe that God does that. But there are those who take that and just make it the only thing. And that is not primarily, again, what being a prophetic person is about. God may do that. Awesome. But on the other side, um, how do I say this delicately? Some people are convinced that just being a jerk is being prophetic. I'm just going to be rude. Jesus turned over tables. Yeah, he did that one time. Maybe twice, depending on how you reconcile the account in John and the synoptic gospels. And I don't have time to get into that. Check YouTube. Don't check YouTube, actually. I take that back. Just being bold and just being a bully, or I just speak my mind, or I speak the truth. That's not being prophetic like Jesus. Jesus was prophetic, and there is a time for a bold word. But Jesus also delivered a very bold prophetic message to a Samaritan woman at a well with a lot of tenderness in his voice. So I would like to, just in the last couple minutes I have here, instruct us in how to be prophetic like Jesus. First and most important is, obviously, you have to receive the gospel. For anyone who is here today, whether in person or online, and you've not yet entrusted yourself to Jesus, if you've not heard the prophetic word that says, there is something wrong in here, not just out there, but in here, I need to repent. I need to receive the good news of the gospel. I need to believe that Jesus died and rose again. Then today is the day. Come find me or one of the other leaders, the prayer team members after the service. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. If by God's grace you have already received the gospel, then what? Receive it again. You only need to receive the gospel on days ending in Y. I had higher hopes for that. I'm sorry. You'll get it on the drive home. Listen, every single day, my heart is prone to forget the love that sought me and the blood that bought me. Every single day, my heart is prone to treat people around me with less love and kindness than I've been shown by God. So every day I need to come to my God and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Help me to hear the words of the gospel afresh and follow you with joy. First and most important, receive the gospel. Number two, we have to become wise in recognizing that herd instinct. I don't want to go too far out on this branch, but we are living in some unprecedented times where through various technology and mass media, it is easier than ever to get groups of people thinking in a certain way. And I'm not here to, you know, I'm not here to say, you know, everything that's popular is wrong. That's not it. But both God's word, as well as even discoveries of modern science and psychology, confirm for us that it's real easy to slip into that rut of just thinking the same as everyone, following along with everyone, and part of being prophetic is knowing your principles, knowing who you are, knowing where you stand. Like Jesus, when his family comes and says, 
you're out of your mind. He says, well, I, I know who my father is. Who are my father and my brothers and my sisters and my mother, the ones who do the will of my father in heaven? So you just need to recognize that. Number three, I implore with you all to reject this worship justice split. I, I, it, is just, uh, it breaks the heart of God to have one group of Christians calling people names like social justice warrior and socialist with another group of Christians lobbing bombs and calling them fundamentalists and legalists. Friends, God cares about godly living both to him and to others. Read the prophets. See the way that they were just, like you, you can't separate the two. Living to God is caring for others. What did Jesus say? giving a cold cup of water in my name. You, you, you give it to someone else, you're like doing it to me. It's inseparable. Reject the split. And then lastly, number four, remember the hope when things seem really bleak. Has anyone felt, I don't know, discouraged lately? Has anyone felt problems? Is anyone alive? Is anyone breathing? Uh, <laughs> Man, those things are real. And like the prophets, like Jesus, we don't, we don't just smooth them over. They're there, it's okay, a little Christian cliche, a little whatever. No, we acknowledge it. And yet, at the same time, we remember that we're people of the resurrection. And no matter how dark the night seems, the light of his glorious grace has dawned in our hearts and in our minds. So we remember that we are people of hope, even in times of sorrow. And in just a moment, we're going to gather around the Lord's table and we're going to do it. It's a prophetic, symbolic act, breaking the bread and drinking of the cup to say, it's Jesus. He's the one. It's like, it's like the Apostle Peter said, when everyone else is abandoning, it's like, where else would I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So let's come to the table. Let's be nourished by his grace so that we can live prophetically like Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to communicate truth to us. Lord, we want to come to you now where our own hearts, where we haven't lived faithfully before you, where we haven't worshipped you faithfully, where we haven't loved others faithfully. Lord, would you help us to heed the message of the prophets that we would repent and yet at the same time, Lord, know that your grace is more than enough for us. Lord, I ask and I pray right now that as we eat of the bread and as we drink of the cup, that you would strengthen us to live prophetically like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.